0: So, tonight, um, I'm going to just show a few slides at the beginning here. Um, Some of the lead in slides are slides that I wanted to show last year and never got to. Some of them are some of the, uh, and I picked some that have to do with the flood because the theme of the Exodus was judgment salvation. The theme of the flood was judgment salvation. So, we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again that you are so gracious that you have seen fit to give light to us and preserve that light, the text of Scripture throughout the centuries. We thank you for the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that your Holy Spirit, as he um, illuminates our hearts to the content of Scripture, that we would see more of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, this is just a cover of a book. It's an artist's conception of the, the Noahic Flood and it's uh, the day when it happened. And it's just kind of, again, to get in your mind's eye that we're talking about a major catastrophe. It's um, another, another one of his this particular authors of artist painting. Again, it comes off the face of a book, but it gives an idea, one, one Christian's imagination of what that event must have looked like if you were there. This was something we talked about last uh, last year, and it's one of those little details of the text of the Word of God that unless you look carefully at the text, you miss it. But this is a diagram of what we call it hydrodynamic stability of the arc. If you take the cross-section of the arc's dimensions and you compute the center of gravity of that body, and you say okay how far does it have to roll before a tip before it rolls over and the arc is very very stable why this is important is is because if you take the same dimensions from the fable from the myth of the floods in the ancient world uh, and you try the same test compute the center of gravity and tip it and see how fast it rolls over, you'll find it rolls over very easy. For example, the Babylonian uh, example of Noah's Ark is a cube. Well, a cube rolls. Uh, this is extremely stable. And as you can see, uh, even at that point, um, when it tips, that boat will right itself. So it's one of those realistic details of Scripture that tell us and it gives the assurance that we've we got real data there. This was a scale model I built years ago based on the text of Genesis. And I, I just put, made it out of bolster wood and some plaster, but again, it was to conceptualize what it must have looked like compared to the usual cartoons in, in a Sunday school uh, quarterly or something. If you have trouble seeing these, uh, feel free to move around, come on up and look at it. Uh, we're not going to spend many minutes on it, but I just want to go through some of these quick. You'll notice how low... That was one where I I, deliberately built it to the scale. Those of you who are model railroad people, that's a HO gauge railroad there, one-eighth of an inch of the foot, and I built the arc one-eighth of an inch of the foot so you could compare, in your mind's eye, a railroad boxcar to the size of that arc. And I think it gives you a, a conception of uh, pretty good. There's the b- railroad boxcar, and uh, there's the there's the arc, and that's just... Uh, Half, this is the center of the arc, and this is the height of the arc compared to the height of a railroad car. So it gives a graphic illustration of the volume of what we're talking about here. This isn't some, you know, this is not a little pet carrier that went down to veterinary hospital or something. There's another example uh, of the thing compared to a railroad boxcar. So remember that if you compute the volume of that, there's some 500. I think 400 and some odd standard boxcars can fit in that thing. So it was quite a carrier and had a lot of volume in it. Okay, now what I want to do here, this is some art, some of the Egyptian art that obviously we're not going to see with the light the way it is. It's the same kind of paintings that you saw, that that I, I showed you on the overhead projector. The reason I showed that particular one, it gives you an idea that the artists always pictured the Egyptian Pharaoh uh, as the leader, and I just remind you of that because um, if you accept the existing chronology of history, Pharaoh couldn't have been leading his armies through the Red Sea because the Pharaoh of the exodus, all the Pharaoh candidates for the Exodus, have been suggested by scholars based on the standard chronology of history, all alive. They didn't, weren't killed. So. I go back to my contention. I believe the Pharaoh of the Exodus was killed and I believe the standard chronology of history is wrong. Let's get down to... Okay. Now, we're moving to a little introduction that's Mount Sinai. Um, I hope the light will be enough. If it isn't, I may have to ask somebody to go knock some more lights out. Um, But this map gives an idea of how strategically located um, Israel was. In the ancient world. Uh, This is the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And what you have here is more light. (laughs) Okay, one more time if you can do it. Okay. Um, These black lines are the main trade routes. Now, if you think about where God located this new nation that was born in the Exodus, just visualize this in the light of a world map. What continent do you have pointing up there? What continent is to the northeast? Asia. What continent is to the northwest? Europe. What continent is to the south? Africa. Now, isn't it striking that God chose His people to set up a nation of testimony on the crossroads of trade of the world. Now, this is something people don't think about when they read about Israel in the Old Testament. They just think of it, oh, well, it's just another country in the, old, in the old world. Well, it was more than a country in the old world. It was strategically located on the lines of communication between the continents. It was no accident. Because God is going to do something with his people, and he wants the word of God to go forth. And so where does he do it? He puts it right smack dab at the center of the crossroads. Now, Sinai is this little area of land. <clears throat> this is a modern map of Israel. The Red Dead Sea here, the Red Sea here, the Gulf of Aqaba here, and then the Suez Canal here. So this is an enlargement of the Sinai Peninsula. Basically, shaped like a triangle and you want to visualize this because the event we're going to study happened in here the exodus happened somewhere up in here the people came across and along the edge of the Mediterranean is a coastal plain and even today because this is a map for today you can see where the roads are all the roads are along here and in particular this is an area that's very very flat and maneuverable and in the ancient world the armies would move rapidly through here on horses and in chariots and of course in the modern day armies move to the same exact roads uh with mechanized infantry and armor division in fact in 1948 one of the israeli generals was concerned because the egyptian armored column was moving along this coastal road to as a penetration. The Egyptians in 1948 would kind of destroy Israel. And so the idea was they were going to run their armored columns up in here to Tel Aviv and destroy the Jews. What happened was that there was a guy who had his PhD in biblical history and archaeology who also was a re- general in the, army, in the army reserves. And so he said, what we have to do is s- cut their flanks and ambush them somewhere along that road. The problem is, how do we get our armored tanks instead of having a head-on collision with them this way, which would give away our position, what we want to do is cut them off at the flank by a flanking maneuver. How do you get the tanks up from here over to here? And his knowledge of history, he went back and found out where the Romans' roads were, because the Romans had built some roads across the sand, they were under the sand. And through detecting devices, they discovered where the Roman road was, kept it covered with sand so the aerial photography wouldn't show it, and then drove the Israeli tanks along on top of the Roman road to get over here and surprise the Egyptians on their right flank. So there's an example of a maneuver that was done based on history and based on the fact these roads don't change. Well, tonight, what we want to look at is visualize the Jews coming across in the Exodus, and they had to go somewhere. And God did not have them go along the coastal road because of reasons which, if you read the book of Exodus, you'll see there's a little comment there, uh, don't do that, Moses, take them down into here, into the wilderness. So this whole area is wilderness. And down here is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, Jebel Musa, or the mountain of the discipline, or the mountain of the teaching. And I want to give you a little bit of flavor for the environment in which God took those people. There is a blow-up of the Gulf of Aqaba, the eastern side of that. Again, this is the Sinai Peninsula. This is where Mount Sinai is. This is a coastal road. And uh, I'm going to show you some pictures. I took it right about in here near the Gulf of Aqaba. And then uh, show you what the terrain looks like when you go in on this road toward Mount Sinai. This is a close-up of the approach to Sinai today. I can't do that now because they've given that part back to Egypt. I'll get through the maps here, okay. There's an example of an oasis in that area. And you'll notice there's a combination of terrain there. There's the flat land, and then out of the sand, which is pretty level, you get these mountains that suddenly jut up. Very dry, everything's hot, and uh, obviously very sparse and you can always tell where the water is because it's the only green around for miles so when in the book of Numbers when you read the numbers about the Jews you imagine a million people wandering around out in this stuff you've got a little logistics problem and we forget that the only miracle wasn't uh, Exodus wasn't the only miracle the miracle was the supply line God had to feed and water over a million people in that terrain, every 24 hours. Now, i give an example. When Desert Storm took over, we had 450,000 troops in the, in the desert. People forget it's not the weaponry, ultimately, that, that determines a war. What really determines the outcome of a war is the logistics. Who can outweigh the other guy? And if you stop and think what a mess it is to serve 450,000 soldiers... Three meals a day, plus all their water, plus all the gas and oil for the vehicles. Now you figure out the kind of a problem you got. Now just multiply that three to four times. That's the problem God had in keeping the Jews together in this wilderness area. So don't think of the Exodus as an isolated miracle. It was one of a whole set of miracles that was done in this. And you can get better appreciation for it by this is one of the convenient forms of transportation, all terrain vehicle. That's a, a typical oasis. That is an example of, you see the little black thing hanging under the tree? That is clothing of a Bedouin. And uh, on all this heat, these people walk around in black wool. Now, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And uh, they've done it for centuries. So it just goes to show <laughs> that you can, can wear that stuff. But that guy left that, that's his cloak, and he left it there. Do you know that he can leave it there in the desert and nobody touches it? You know why? Because if they, you touch it and you steal it, they catch you, you cut, they cut your hands off. And I just took that as an example of the fact that they're, the Bedouin feel perfectly secure in the wilderness. Nobody bothers them because they have their own form of criminal control. there be a lot of one-handed people around here. This is uh, just what, the, what they're walking on now. That's just sand and rock, sand and rock, sand and rock. This is what, what they walked on to get to Sinai. There's an example of uh, kind of going in inward to that center of Sinai. That's a pass. You go in there and then all of a sudden now you begin to see a much more rugged type mountain terrain. This is an example of some of the rocks that are there, the sandstone and volcanic basaltic formations. That's a, a sand, kind of a sandstone type rock and there's graffiti on it and it's interesting that the graffiti that's scratched in the rock is many different languages going back centuries and you can actually go back in history you see some Latin graffiti those are the Romans you can go back and see some of the Greek graffiti you can see hieroglyphic graffiti so it's an interesting example if everybody writes you know they spray um, billboards today with graffiti uh, it's nothing new uh, here in the ancient world they had graffiti too they wrote all over the rocks so human nature hasn't changed and it's just kind of neat because it gives you an example that there were real people living at the time of this book. Living at the time of these stories that put that graffiti on there. This is a more of a basaltic type rock formation. Now there, that in the wilderness, that... In a distance there is the area where Mount Sin- the traditional Mount Sinai is. I say traditional because I think that's the real one. Most people do, but there are con- some Christians that don't believe that that is the mountain. Here's a- another example of the terrain. Now, this is an ex- this is at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, Cecil DeMille in the Ten Commandments actually used this as a prop for the movie. And I don't know how he superimposed it. But, anyway, uh, the, the, the real Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as this is called, a Jebel Musa, is, is uh, pictured in that movie. Now, the, the Sinai itself is this. This is the big mountain right here. So, here's Sinai. Off here is a little monastery. And... In the front, there's a little mound of dirt. Looks like a little mound. Actually, it's about 50 feet high. This little thing right here. Now, those of you who read Exodus, what happened when Moses was up here? What were the people doing? Anybody remember the story? Party time. And in particular, who was leading the party? Aaron. Aaron. And what did Aaron do? Remember he built a what? He built an idol. And he while Moses was up the mountain he built this idol and uh, Moses came down and asked him what had happened was he says gee I don't know you know people had their jewelry and uh, we put it in the fire and this just happened you know. And this is the way he explains himself but it, it, to show you the irony the classic site that they believe that Aaron set the golden calf at was this now, how ironic that he cast gold from people's jewelry to stick up on an idol so high, up, high on this little pedestal so everybody can see it. But look at this pedestal and who's on it? So it's an ir- irony that it shows the puniness of the whole thing. I mean, the whole, it's a big religious gimmick. That's an example of Sinai. Now, that's the picture you want to have in your mind when in Exodus, if you'll turn there a moment. Um, On Exodus 19... Verse 2. I guess they must be having a landing out for the fire department tonight, as long as it's not on our roof. Verse 2 of Exodus 19. And I'd like you to to read that. Let's read it together and then think on what we're looking at here on the screen. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. So Israel is camping right there and there's the front of the mountain. So now you can get an idea, visualize what's happening here. You'll also notice in verse 17... Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest when they break through to the Lord to gaze, many of them perish. And He, made that, he sanctified that mountain so that they uh, would not come up there. Okay, that's the place where it happened. And then, these, hopefully, this will give you uh, a little bit of um, flavor for the text there. Now, what I did here is I flipped the camera 180 degrees. So now what you're seeing is the place where the people were. And if you'll observe an interesting thing, uh, when God speaks, um, let's see, verse 18 of chapter 20, and all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the smoke, mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they told Moses, why don't you go up to it? We don't, you know, <laughs> talk about the fear of God. Um, they asked, the people in verse 21, they stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Moses later describes this scene in another book of the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you turn there a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Oreb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may hear, they may hear my words so they may learn to fear Me all the days they live on earth, and that they may teach their children. And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And so He declared to you His covenant. So what you have here is... The the million people assembled in this plain. Now, what's striking about it is is look what's on both sides. Now, your back now is to Mount Horeb. So you're looking, actually, you're looking northwest. And the people are here all throughout here. This is a long way. It doesn't look that way in the picture. This is quite a large, large area here. Uh, You jog across there, you'd find it was a lot bigger than a mile. So, what would happen if God spoke in a thundering voice from Mount Sinai? From on high, and His voice comes down across this valley. You've got echoing going on. So, you've got the people in like an amphitheater. What you have is it's almost like a big triangle out from Mount Sinai where the people are and the voice of God bouncing off this rock cliff. So, it must have been a very spectacular situation when you this is uh, at because of the heat you don't like to go climbing mountains in the heat so we try to climb it early in the morning so this is not too good a light level here but what I'm trying to show you is what the mountain looks like when you climb it that's what it looks like on the top and uh, of course people over the centuries have climbed there and there's a is a pathway established so it's not a big climb but still it gives you an idea of the utter barrenness it's just quiet desolate and barren now you might ask yourself why to a people who were busy in Egypt building pyramids busy doing this busy doing that going from here going to there working farms and so on when God wanted to get their attention Why did he take them out here? Well, because he could get their attention. And I think there's something very powerful about this, that when the Word of God was actually spoken into space-time history in Hebrew, so you could take a tape recorder and tape record the very voice of God, that happened here. When that happened, it was done in a total wilderness that was quiet. No televisions, no radios, No distractions. Perfectly quiet place. And I think if this is the the way God teaches, uh, He he wants our attention. And I think this is an interesting classroom because what you're seeing here is the perfect teacher's classroom. And I guess that's it for for a while here. So what we want to do... Is now look at the, um, at the text tonight, and we'll, with that fill in, fill in, we can get an idea that we're looking at a real event that happened in a real place, under real conditions, with real people, and they heard a real voice. What's that? The elevation of Sinai? The elevation of Sinai? Uh, you mean above the dirt and ground? I don't know. I mean, it's not a big mountain. It's just, of the mountains there, it's it's one of the bigger ones. But I, I mean, it was a four-hour hike up to it. So I, I really don't know. I, I, you know, it's on a map. I, I don't know. But I, I, it wasn't super impressive high, like the Rocky Mountains or anything. Okay, we want to, if you'll turn in the notes to page 60, we want to connect this event with the previous events. As you're moving on now through the Old Testament, all these events are like beads on a necklace. They're all logically interrelated. So, what's going on at Sinai? If you'll follow me in the first paragraph on page 60, previous chapters discuss the progressive intervention of God's plan into the paganized Noahic civilization. The key word here is, at this point in Old Testament history, God is interrupting. He is disrupting. Paganism is solidifying like concrete is hardening. And before the concrete hardens and you get a total paganization of the human race, God decides to start a new work in a separate people. And that's the story of Egypt. It's a story that started with Abraham. First, there was the call of Abraham through which we observe God's election and justification, working in a way totally opposed to paganism's autonomy and self-justification. Then we observed on a greater scale God's political and physical judgment upon Egypt and the deliverance of Israel. Man's proper response to these divine works had to be by faith. And then in in the second second, uh, paragraph, the next key is the giving of the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. So that's the thing we want to look at. We're in Exodus. If you'll turn back to... Uh, let's go back to Exodus 4 for a moment. We want to get catch the flow of what's going on here. And the reason we're doing this this way is because you'll notice on the right-hand side of this chart, I list the three areas of doctrine, the three areas of truth that we're going to be looking at, and um, we're going to basically get an idea of what revelation is, what inspiration is, and what canonicity is. Very basic doctrines. We've looked at all these other doctrines, and see, you can build a view of the Christian faith just by looking at these events, and just rehearsing them in your mind. Well, one of the things that is not on this chart, that Mount Sinai and the Exodus together show, is, is... the issue of salvation and what sanctification is that follows that and what the issue of lordship is. And in evangelical circles right now and has been for the last seven or eight, ten years, big debate going on between one camp, the free grace free people versus the lordship salvation people and they've been arguing about the terms of the gospel and this and that. I mean, if we can't argue with something among ourselves, you know, don't bother and argue with the world. I'll always argue with the other Christians. So, what we want to do is we want to get in our perspective by looking at these events. Because the events, just the simple events of the Exodus and Mount Sinai, tell us something about this matter. So that's what we want to, we want to look at. And so we want to get in our mind now what's happened um, with Israel. Israel now has been saved. The nation has been born. And what is the next step? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God calls Israel by an interesting name. And that name here, that common noun that he uses in Exodus 4.22, defines the relationship of this newborn nation to God. You'll notice... He says, to, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, you let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. So now I'm going to kill your son and your firstborn. Now, this defines something and we want to watch this very, very carefully. If we, if we don't get this down, we're going to lose it when it comes to understanding the role of of the law in the Old Testament. See, the problem is most of us don't read the Old Testament. We've only heard New Testament, New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. And we've heard the contrast law and grace, law and grace, law and grace, to the point that we almost kind of demean law. The problem is that in the New Testament times, the law had been misinterpreted. So you have Paul against the Pharisees, Jesus against the Pharisees. And law kind of has a bad connotation in the pages of the New Testament. But obviously God gave the law, so the law itself can't be bad. So we want to understand and interpret what's going on here. And the key to interpreting it is this word, that the Son is identical and another name for Israel, the nation. Now, later on, it's going to be obvious that the Son of God refers to the King of Israel. And then later on, the Son of God is going to be Jesus Christ. So the term Son of God or Son of the Lord is a term that begins here, but now identified because there's there's no King yet, there's no Messiah yet, but this is the nation from which He will come. And that relationship between God and Israel is called a father-son relationship. We want to notice something at this point. If this is the Exodus event and this is Mount Sinai, let's see if we can draw some conclusions here. Just preliminary. If the if if God saved and created the nation here. And over here was when he told the nation what his will for them was, what he wanted, how he wanted them to behave. Then, did the law save Israel? No. Israel had already been saved before Sinai. Now watch this. This is how you can learn from the Old Testament. Powerful stuff here. Very simple to understand. Which came first? Mount Sinai or the Exodus. God didn't come to Israel inside Egypt and tell them what he wanted them to do. All he told them he wanted them to do in in Exodus, get out. That was the message. You get out of the world. I'm going to save you, I'm going to deliver you out of the world system, out of this kingdom of man, out of Egypt. Now after I do that, after I do that, now, I tell you what I want you to do. So watch the sequence of events and notice that once the nation is born, through the exodus, once the nation is born, the father-son relationship persists. The father-son relationship is the basis of everything that goes on, including the law. So however we're going to interpret the law, we want to understand it comes after salvation here after the nation's been created. In page 61, I quote Dr. Kaiser, one of our contemporary evangelical Old Testament scholars, and here's where he points out that that son is a, is a technical word that is going to come to mean Jesus pretty you know, as history goes on. He says... Eventually, my son was connected with the coming Sion of the house of David in 2 Samuel 7.14. This designation, my son, became a technical term and an appellation that could be applied either collectively to the nation as the object of God's love and election, or specifically to that final representative person who was to come in Christ. So right here we have a setup going on, very subtly, very slowly, but here it is. It's taking place. And this is the the maneuver that's going on that will eventually culminate in the coming of Christ. Now we want to look at something else. Um, If you turn to Exodus 22, we want to look at the law, just a little section of the law here. If you look at chapter 22, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I were to ask you, what is the grammar? What is the structure that you see in every sentence? Every sentence is, is written sort of the same way there. How, how would you say? How would you characterize that text? How is it set up? Let's look at verse 1 verse 2. We can tell immediately from the first two verses. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the oxen, four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for, sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double, etc., etc., etc. Now, obviously, this is law code. And it's written in an if-then. So, watch the text and watch this. If dot 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 then. Dot 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 dot. That's the way the law code is written. That's the way many laws are written. In that sense, these sections of the Mosaic Law are identical to modern law codes. Okay? Okay. And we call this format casuistic. That means it's cases. It shows you a principle by giving cases. Here's an example God says. If this happens, then you do this. If this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. So it's casuistic in format. Well, there were a lot of codes that were casuistic in format. Hammurabi's code. The Code of Eshnunna, the Code, the all kinds of ancient documents had this casuistic structure. But we want to also observe that God, when He gave the law, didn't exclusively use the casuistic format. As, for example, let's look at. Um, The previous chapter verse twenty, right after the Ten Commandments. in verse twenty two of Exodus twenty. Now is this casuistic? Look at the sentence structure here. and we we're, we're going to drive to a point and it's very very important point about the Old Testament law. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice upon it, this and that and this and that and this and that. Now, there's no if-then there, is there? That's also a part of the law. And that part of the law we call, by another form, personal exhortation. Now, here's the principle. Formal law codes don't have... They have number one, but they don't have number two. The uniqueness of the Old Testament law is that it not only has number one type format, it has this number two type format. It has this personal exhortation. Um, Let's see if we can find a case where... The personal exhortation. um, Okay. Let's turn over to Exodus chapter twenty three. And if you look at verse thirteen. you look at verse 13 of Exodus 23, how do you interpret that? As an ethical rule for private practice as well as public practice? Or do you view it as purely a public thing? In other words, what I'm getting at here is there are, in the, in the personal exhortation of the law, there are commands that in no way could any police force enforce. The if-then are all formal law that obviously you have a police function and you have a court function that can enforce those. But if you also read the law carefully, there's gobs of it that it just wasn't practical. I mean, you couldn't have a policeman reading people's thoughts and going around a tape recorder and what, everything they said. And we want to think about what does this mean? As far as, quote, the law in the Old Testament, what is this thing called the law? Is it really the same thing as what we call, by the word L-A-W, a a law code formally passed in the legislature and so forth and codified and so forth for the courts? Now, is, is it the same? Let's turn to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, where um, we get to the commandments of Moses, where let's, let's get over to an area where, um, okay, let's to Deuteronomy chapter 12, because this is in the thick of it here. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of the fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You will utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You will tear down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their ash stream with fire, and you shall cut down the engraven images of their gods. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish His name there. And then it describes the kind of worship that goes on there and so forth. It describes uh, the dietary codes. Now, you're getting into dietary codes here in this chapter. Is this going to be enforced? Well, obviously some of it can be enforced. But do you see what I'm getting at? That there's a component to the Old Testament law that goes beyond what you and I would normally think of as a law code. Now, how do we explain that? This is a challenging question. And that's the question we want to look at for the remaining few minutes and also for next week. Because I want to to impress upon you how an Old Testament person in Moses' day at Mount Sinai, instructed by the priests, should have understood what he was listening to. And he should have understood it in a different way than a pagan would have understood Hammurabi's law code. There's something different going on here with this law than normal law. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, is that going to be... Let's be realistic. Is a policeman going to come along and arrest you because you haven't circumcised your heart? You're going to have a public trial over circumcision of your heart. Okay. Well, let's think about this. What is the law getting at here? Something is different here. This is not a regular law code. Can anybody anybody want to hazard a guess? Because I want to work through this tonight and next next week as we go through this because. We'll eventually come to a nice, neat way of looking at this, but I want to exercise your thinking a little bit. What is this telling about God's relationship to this nation? He's the ruler. He's laying forth as king his law code. But what do you observe about the law code that is different from a pagan law code? Yes, any? Exactly. Exactly. Remember what I said when I started this whole thing off? It's a father-son relationship. And the evidence that there's a a personal relationship going on here are these things. I mean, you go from the casuistic law to personal excitation, back to casuistic law, back to personal excitation. How do you explain those two mixed together like that? It's because something is happening in the Old Testament law that doesn't happen in normal law. Now, you can grasp this, you're going to see something very, very powerful about righteousness in the gospel sense of righteousness versus self-righteousness and, quote, being humanly good. And we want to sharpen our understanding of this because it's essential to the gospel. If we think we're going to be humanly good and society's going to be good, then we don't need a savior. Now, obviously, we need a savior. So there's something wrong with our whole idea of social good. And yet, there are there's parallels here. Okay, on page 61 of your notes, I start down at the bottom of 61. If you look there, you'll see number one. Then on page 62, you'll see number two. On page 62, you know, Jehovah or Yahweh, and the 12 tribes. So we have the parties to the contract now, God and the nation Israel. Different contract. Not the same as the Abrahamic contract. Number two, each contract is signed. How did God sign the Noahic contract? Remember? The rainbow. And what do we say He got the rainbow from? Well, from the scenes where these saints like Elijah... Uh, or rather, where Ezekiel and John get these rare glimpses into the very throne room of God, they report that when they get into the throne room of God and they observe Him on His throne, He is surrounded by this rainbow, this cloud of glory. So what we see physically in the clouds is a piece or an analogy to what God would look like if we could see Him. I mean, it's amazing. This optical phenomena that's caused by water droplets in our atmosphere has actually been designed to be a picture and a memorial to God's throne. And every time you see a rainbow in the sky, you should you know, pause to take a look, spend 15 whole seconds just looking at it and appreciating it and thanking Him that He reigns. Because that's what He's saying. When the rainbow is in the sky, He's saying, I'm reminding you people, you human beings, that I reign over nature. Then when he comes to the contractual signing for the Abrahamic covenant, remember what the contract was? There in the chart as I point out was the oath of maldiction. Wasn't that remember that amazing thing where God actually says in effect, I will be damned if I do not carry this contract out in history. An oath of maldiction And that's how he signs a contract. Now, when you come to the the Exodus and the Sinaitic uh, um, covenant, it's a little more problematic about what he signs. The best example that I have of what he did here, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20, when he gave the Ten Commandments and he structured the work week So that it would be seven. And by the way, just for fun and trivia, ask yourself you ever heard any country at any point in history that had a week that wasn't seven. Now, that's interesting. You know, when the communists were in their height under Stalin in the Russia, they didn't like the seven-day work week because they thought it was inefficient. They tried a ten-day work week. It didn't work. And they had to go back to seven. Stalin, with all of his might and his secret police, couldn't change the Russian work week from seven to ten days. They figured, hey, one day in ten is a lot better than one day in seven. So we can get more work out of people. But it doesn't work that way. So this is built into the structure of who we are. And in, in the Ten Commandments, is precisely in the middle, verses nine and ten, Where there's an explanation. You see, if you go down verse 4, 5, 6, 7, there are minor comments after each commandment. But in 8, 9, and 10, there's a major comment about the character of God. And it says in verse 10, the seventh day is a Sabbath. You shall not do this work, and so forth. And then verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. By the way, this is the divine interpretation of Genesis. People have a whole bunch of problems about the days. Well, I don't think anybody that was at Mount Horeb that heard this. I mean, here's God speaking in Hebrew from the top of Mount Horeb. And He's saying, I made the world six days. He doesn't say six ages. He says six days. Well, if I'm sitting there and I'm listening to God say that He made it in six days, okay, hey, in six days, fine. I'm not going to sit down and argue with God. He was there, I wasn't. And it says six days. Now, that is believed to be the signature. The keeping of the Sabbath. The seventh day, the keeping of the Sabbath, identifies God over Israel, the King of Israel, as the Creator. So this is why in my notes on page 62 I quote Dr. Meredith Klein who says it is tempting to see in the Sabbath sign presented in the midst of the ten words the equivalent of the ancient Lord King's dynastic seal found in the midst of international treaty documents. We'll get into international treaties later. Won't do it this week, but next week. The point that Klein is making there is that under certain treaty formats there would be a seal actually embedded either a saying or actual picture of a seal and it's at this point where the seal of the Creator is embedded upon the structure of His kingdom the people of His kingdom observe something that is integral to His very character so the signing of the covenant is the Sabbath rest the Sabbath day now we come number three to the fact that every covenant God makes with fallen man, if you turn to Exodus 34, every covenant God makes with us since the fall is a covenant that is in the presence of shed blood. And here, when this covenant is enacted, Wait a minute, am I looking at 34 or 24? I see my notes, I've got it two places here, let me just see. No, it's Exodus 24. I've got it wrong in the text. In Exodus 24, verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, then he rose in the morning, built an altar, he sent young men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the contract and he read it in the hearing of the people. And that's when they swore obedience. And then verse 8, Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. So now the covenant is enacted with shed blood. See the consistency? Once you see this consistency, the New Testament just falls into place. the, the, The things in the New Testament aren't new. Very little of the New Testament is new. Very little, once you know the Old. Finally, in, uh, at the bottom of page 62, I go to the terms of the Sinaitic Covenant. And what I say there is that it defines the quality of the relationship between God, King, and His, con- His nation. I want you, if you will please, for next week, to be very careful of the verses I cite on page 63. You'll notice I give you six elements. Now, I've done that because there is discovered in the last 30 or 40 years, scholars have discovered a very, very interesting thing. Back in the days of the old liberals, this was not known. Back in the days of the old liberals, they thought, well, a Mosaic Code is just like Code of Hammurabi or something. Well, they're finding out that, lo and behold, in the ancient world, there would be a so-called great king say a superpower we would say today and he would make a treaty with a vassal king that is a lesser power third world country or something there would be a great king and he would enter into a treaty with a vassal king it would be an international treaty the six parts you see on page 63 characterize those Susan Tree vassal treaties or those great king vassal king treaties now these apparently I believe they occurred after. I think this is the original one. But some of the scholars say, well, God used that as a format that had been pre-established. But whatever. There's six parts to those treaties. There is a stunning parallel with the Old Testament. And what we want to do next week is we want to read those verses where I show you how the Old Testament law code had the same six features in it that was routinely used in international relations by the superpowers when they locked into obedience a lesser country. When that, when that treaty was made, it followed these kinds of things. And it's a fascinating uh, revelation about this father-son thing. So it's all kind of, kind of come together next week, hopefully. We get with a father-son relationship. What is unique about the Old Testament law code that sets it over against pagan law codes? And what is this deal about it being more of like a treaty? So those are the things we're going to aim for. And I think out of that, we're going to have a really nice new appreciation for what we've got here. What a gift the Old Testament law is. It's so rarely read, so rarely preached, so rarely understood. Father, we thank You that You were faithful and that You are faithful. We thank You for this great event of the, of the giving of the law at Sinai of leading Your people into a desert wilderness in an environment where they could focus and pay attention to You. And that You went through the process of revealing Yourself in minute detail so that we know Your character and Your attributes. We thank You for that revelation. And we ask that we could have our hearts circumcised to be willing servants who would submit and would obey. In Christ's name, Amen. We'll have a Q.A. here a little bit for those who have to leave, take our customary break, and uh, then we'll try to get out here before nine. And we'll close the class. Um, We've gone into a new new event tonight, so we' kind of changing territory, changing the uh, so the perspective a little bit. Um, anything that you'd like to um, follow up on or review from the Exodus or anything? No. Yeah, basically what D getting at here is that it's quite obvious if you devote some thought to this that the law that is given here can't be enforced by anybody except God. And if you look at those six little sections, one of them is blessings and cursings. And uh, I think I list <coughs> uh, under that number six with a blessing and cursings, I hope I did anyway, Um, well you don't have to you don't have to tell well you do now because you have the notes that were handed out tonight on page 64 the notes handed out tonight if you look carefully at Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 those are the two major Old Testament passages that define the cursings and the blessings it seems maybe if you're not well exposed to the Old Testament, it may seem to you that that's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of unrelated to the New Testament because the New Testament is all grace and so on. Well, the blessings and the cursings turn out to be the outline of Old Testament history. If you look carefully at that, those passages, it's a forecast of what is going to happen to the nation Israel. All of her history is embedded in those chapters. And see, it's this reason that liberal scholars, when they come to the Old Testament, do it with scissors and paste. They want to get all this, because they can't believe in prophecy. So that couldn't have been written by Moses, because Moses didn't know what was going to happen. So that's why they always try to tear this out, and that Moses couldn't read that, and so forth. And then they make that down here, and they rearrange the text of the Old Testament. Well, that's why, because they've got to get rid of all this stuff, see. But if it's really true that we have a God-King, who is the same one who created the universe. Then you read the blessings and the cursings and you'll see that they involve economics, they involve climate, they involve disease, they involve things over which man has no control. So here you have the the law that is being addressed to the hearts, not just social behavior, hearts. And then you have a God who threatens enforcement with tools, that far exceed that of any, any king any human king see the law from the beginning to the end is all supernatural and it's, it's a fascinating study to me it really opens up the whole Old Testament and it really shows you why in the New Testament history culminates in the return of Christ because when he comes again he fulfills those, the archetype of those cursings and the blessings there are certain people who will be cursed and there are certain people who are going to be blessed and, and there's the forecast right there in that law code. So there's a lot of neat things here for us, and we have to zip through like we're zipping through the whole Bible. Um, and all we can do is just kind of pause and look at the jewels and, and not, not touch them and feel them and get involved in all the details. But we can at least see where the jewels are, so maybe it'll stimulate you to sometime when you want to work on a particular jewel to go focus on that one or this one or that one in the Old Testament document. The other thing you want to notice about that is that in um, on page 63, element 5, the invocation of witnesses to the treaty. Now that's a, that's neat. Uh, I think I also, be sure when you read that uh, element number 5 on page 63, I give you verses in Deuteronomy but be sure you turn to that last verse I quote from Isaiah. That Isaiah 1-2 passage. The reason why I want you to look at that is how many times have you thought and been taught that the Old Testament prophets were guys who were kind of like social reformers going around and preaching about social ills. Which they did. But what this does for Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets, is it makes them an invocation to the witnesses. There are witnesses to this document. We haven't talked about the witnesses, who the witnesses are. But when the Mosaic Covenant was made in history between Israel and God, there were a set of witnesses. And if you look carefully at Isaiah, when he goes to preach, he's not like a social reformer preaching just at social ills. What Isaiah is the prosecuting attorney who is calling upon the witnesses to the treaty, and he's enforcing the treaty sections. So what God is doing through the Old Testament prophets is completely misinterpreted by people who don't look at the Old Testament as an entity. The prophets of the Old Testament are not social preachers. They are prosecuting attorneys of the treaty. The treaty terms are now being applied to the nation. When these prophets rise up, they are God's attorneys who are applying the code. They're not saying this is just bad. They're saying that you have violated the ordinance of God and you were told back in Moses' day that this would happen to you. Now, I'm here to tell you that phase one of Leviticus 26 is starting in my day. And then another prophet would come along and say, you people have violated the treaty. Now, what I'm here to announce that in my ministry, I'm invoking phase two of Leviticus 26. And then another prophet would come up and he'd say, I'm invoking phase three. So all these prophets that were raised up by God were actually speaking his voice of prosecution. When you see that, it begins to tie now the prophets to the law. Remember there's three parts of the Old Bible, Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. What's the relationship of the prophets to the law? They are the prosecuting attorneys. They are not people who just were raised up because the society was bad. They are men who stand in the stream of the enforcers of the treaty. Now, personally, they may not have thought that, but the Spirit of God that was working in them was the actual enforcer who called the men up, Amos, Hosea, called all those guys out of their lifestyles, made them do things that were just utterly unheard of in the ancient world. Nobody walked into a king You don't walk into Pharaoh and accuse him like Nathan accused David. You didn't do that. If you did, you'd have your head severed from your body in about three seconds. And what you find is that this treaty secularizes the power of the king. And it's that, it's one of the great fruits of the Bible. Do you know where our limitations and political power came from? It came from men and women in the Western civilization who read this. Uh, When we get to that point, I'm going to bring in a book that I got out years ago out of Harvard Library. And it's uh, Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, written in 1644 against the British claim, the British monarch claimed divine right, that is, absolute power. He claimed that God had called him into existence and that Parliament and the Church were under his personal control because he was God's king. And obviously this is very powerful, and if if you were weak spiritually you'd say, "Oh okay, and go along with it." Well, the Christians who were knowledgeable of scripture didn't go along with that they didn't go along with absolute power claim and they went back and they picked up the stream of Old Testament thought that curtailed the power of the king and made the king the human king subservient to the grand king or the law. so it was always God the treaty and the king so the human king was always here and that was the thing that has given us political freedom that's where our political freedom came from it didn't come from Aristotle and dem- Greek democracy it came out of this law this law so there's lots of neat parts in it and that's that's what we started tonight this personal relationship means that that law has a quality to it that no other law code on earth has ever Had a quality like that. Yes, Harry? The blessing of the curse is the law you say between God and the full front. Are you going to discuss how that would apply to us now and the curse? Yeah, I, I can't get into a big, hairy discussion about it, but perhaps we can get a little bit. Hebrews and some of the New Testament passages pointed out because God's nature hasn't changed. Those particular curses, though, are national curses. And they we have to this is where you have to be careful how you interpret the Old Testament. This is a treaty. America isn't in that. The Sinaitic Covenant isn't made with America. The Sinaitic covenant isn't made with Germany, it isn't made with Italy, it isn't made with France, it isn't made with Japan, it's made with only one nation. And so the literal text of that treaty does not apply to this country. In the sense that it's, we're not a party of the covenant, but the God who is behind this is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So as the law reflects His character, then we sit here asking for wisdom. How do we? What's the best way of organizing our communities and our society? We certainly go here to find out. Basically, what we're doing is we're going here and saying, Well, God, you know, when you reigned in one nation, here's how you reign. Now, can we learn from that? And I hope that you will be curious enough over the next three or four weeks that you'll pick up your Bibles and just, just randomly skim through sections of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, especially Deuteronomy. Um, just, just read cut chapter two, and here's what I'd like you to do as you do that, is ask yourself, what areas of life are addressed here? And what I'd like you to discover, and come, to the, come to the discovery of seeing just how all-encompassing this law was. Ask yourself if there was any area of life that's unaddressed in this law. We've got diet, what you eat. We've got Sabbath laws, how long you labor and work. We've got criminal laws that find what crime is. We've got laws that define how the judges administer punishment. By the way, jail isn't one of them. And we have law codes that tell about clothing, what to wear. We have codes that define the relationship of parents to children and children to parents. We've got laws that relate to homosexuality, to divorce, to all this. It's every modern social issue is addressed in that law. It's just amazing. We even have how long, how much you can be in debt. Even the issue of credit and debt and personal finances is addressed here. So it's just amazing, Um, and it gives you an idea that all of those areas of life were of concern to the king, not just personal religious things. So yes, Eric, we will get try to do some of that, but I'm limited. Anything else? Okay, well, why don't we, uh, if you'll, um, this week, try, try to hit those six uh, things and, and check the verses out for yourself. And then we'll uh, maybe have some more questions next week.